Could you please open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 2? Now, I understand this is the first time that a lot of the children have been in church for a little while, since there's no more children's church. I've got a promise for you. Uh, my sermon is five pages shorter today than it was last week. So that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, I did preach for 45 minutes last week, but so um, it'll be shorter today. That's my promise to you. It won't be 45 minutes. It might be 44 minutes, okay? <laughs> now, for the kids, my, my kids were a little bit... Um, Dad, do we really have to listen to you preach instead of going to children's church? I said, yes, you do. I'm sorry. Why don't you draw me a picture about the sermon? Okay, so for the kids out there, if you can draw a picture about something that I say, and you can show it to me after, that would be wonderful. Okay, that'll make my day. So if you can draw me a picture, uh, please do that. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, uh, Christmas comparisons, religious leaders verse the wise man. That's where we're at this morning. And I'd like to pray. And uh, then we'll get into the sermon. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for this Christmas season where we can focus uh, on the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is the greatest news ever told, uh, that Jesus took upon himself human flesh, dwelt among us in order to save us. And our uh, Lord, as we focus on one particular aspect uh, of this uh, great story this morning, to pray that you would help us. Please give us ears to see, eyes to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to apply. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you ever missed something important? A vital appointment or occasion where you needed to be, and yet for some reason you missed it? Perhaps it was a job interview. You desperately wanted the job, but for some reason you missed the interview. Or maybe you had a date organized with a special someone and for some unforeseen reason you didn't show up. Hope you apologized. If you've ever forgotten, have you ever forgotten the birthday or the wedding anniversary of your spouse? If you've done that, I hope you had a comfortable couch to sleep on. Have you had a significant medical appointment? You've waited so long for this appointment, but then you missed the appointment. Perhaps there was a train delay and you didn't get to your appointment. Or has there been an incredibly significant world event and for some reason you completely missed it? Everyone else is talking about it, but you have no idea. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced this in one way or another. We've missed something important. Now, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is what Christmas is all about, is the most significant events of history. God took upon himself human flesh, forming what we call the hypostatic union. So fully and perfectly God, fully and perfectly man, united in one person. And he came to earth and he came on a rescue mission. A rescue mission to provide salvation from sin. Now God's plan of salvation, which was developed in eternity past, was going to be executed. The long-awaited Messiah finally arrived. And understand, this was the moment that so many people had been longing and looking for. And yet the vast majority of people missed the most important moments of history. It's so striking that so few people were even aware of the birth of Christ. Okay, we need to understand Bethlehem was full of people because there had been a census issued to be taxed. 
Jerusalem was also full of people. It was only eight kilometers away, a two-hour walk. And yet the vast majority were completely oblivious. Jesus was born in obscurity. No fanfare, no publicity. Just about the whole world missed this monumental moment. And that is a great tragedy. But it does set the tone for the ministry of Jesus. And this reminds us of how astonishing, how glorious Jesus is. We need to understand Jesus is God. Jesus is worthy to have every knee bow before him. Jesus is worthy of all publicity, all acclamation. Jesus is worthy of all worship, glory and honor. And yet he came in obscurity, in lowly and humble circumstances. My friend, this is an astonishing humility. What condescension. Okay, and this is Jesus. It's condescension beyond comprehension. He deserved the greatest welcome of history. And yet most people missed the most monumental moment of history. And I would like to suggest to you that this is still happening. And that this is still happening even in the church. Christians can miss the significance and the wonder of this moment. And what I'd like to do this morning in this sermon is to present a comparison. Okay, one group of people who responded apathetically to the most monumental moment of history. And another group of people who responded appropriately to the most monumental moment in history. Okay, this is the comparison. Two groups... And then we need to determine what group we find ourselves in. Okay, we, we will all be in one of these two groups. But before we consider these responses, we need to spend some time developing the story. And then we will conclude by zooming in on these responses. Now, I would like to warn you that there's a lot of myth and tradition associated with this account in Matthew chapter 2. The, the account of the wise man, and I may be about to ruin your favorite Christmas carol, uh, We Three Kings, and uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's a wonderful carol, and it's actually one of my favorites, but these wise men, they weren't kings. It wasn't necessarily three, because three gifts doesn't automatically mean three people. Because let me tell you tomorrow, my kids are getting an awful lot of gifts from two people, okay, Poppy and Grandma. It's not just two gifts. If you don't believe me, come and have a look at my lounge room. There's presents everywhere. And also, they didn't go to the manger, despite what the nativity scenes always picture. They come sometime later. So apologies if you think I'm being a Grinch. I promise you I'm not. But it's important to not portray something as scripture when it's not. And if we actually pay attention to the text here in Matthew chapter 2, you will notice that it presents to us Two kings, not three. We're introduced to King Herod and King Jesus. And they are very different kings. Question for you. Who would you prefer to be your king? You can have King Jesus. He loved children, welcomed them into his presence. Or there's King Herod who slaughtered innocent children out of paranoia. King Jesus, he was loving, kind, compassionate, patient, self-sacrificial, whereas King Herod was aggressive, cruel, brutal, impatient, and self-centered. 
King Jesus was willing to humble himself and give up everything for the benefit of others, whereas King Herod would kill anybody and everybody, including his own wife and children, to protect his position on the throne. King Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, pronounced, Father, forgive them, whereas King Herod, when he was dying, had notable men unjustly slaughtered, in order to ensure that people would weep and not rejoice when he died. Two kings. Who would you want as your king? The madman or the Messiah? And understand that any replacement of Jesus is ultimately a madman or a mad woman compared to the Lord Jesus. Because he is incomparable. Nothing comes close to him. Now, it was this madman, Herod, who was reigning when Jesus was born. He was put in the position by Rome. He's most famous for, for two things, his building projects and for being an absolute lunatic. Okay? They're the two things that he's remembered for. Herod was riddled with paranoia and he would exterminate any threats to his position, real or perceived, including his own wife and children. Okay? It's a deplorable character. And hence, this was not a very nice time for the Jews, because this particular king, he's a maniac, he could lose it at any time. And nothing was beyond this cruel and callous tyrant, particularly if he felt threatened. He guarded his position relentlessly. He's like that cornered snake. If you corner a snake, it's going to rise up and strike, okay, because they perceive danger. This is what Herod was like, whether the danger was real or whether it was all imagined and you can imagine his reaction when when he hears about this bit of commotion in the streets you know king there's some wise men from the east who are in the city now we don't know exactly where they were from there are numerous possibilities presented babylon persia assyria arabia they're the common suggestions they had come into contact with the scriptures in some way but wherever they were from, they had seen a star in the east. And again, there's all kinds of debate about what is this star. Uh, I favor the view that this may well be speaking about the Shekinah glory of God, okay, rather than a star, planet, or meteor. But whatever it was, they saw it. And these men, they went searching for the king of the Jews. And naturally, if you're looking for the Jewish king, where do you go? The capital city. You go to Jerusalem. That's the logical starting place. And I'd like you to notice the phraseology in verse 2. Okay, this is who they're looking for. He that is born king of the Jews. Now understand, you are not born king. Okay, Charles, who's king of the commonwealth, he was not born king. Okay, but, but, but here, okay, when it's speaking about Jesus, this reveals his identity. Okay, they're talking about what or who he is, not what he will become. They are saying he is the king. And that is because Jesus has always been the king and he will always be the king. But you could imagine how such news would infuriate Herod. This is waving the red flag in front of the bull. It's blood in the nostrils of a shark. Who's this king? Where's this king? Well, why do they want to worship this king? Why won't they worship me? What's this star that they're talking about? Okay, understand this is playing all the instruments in the paranoia symphony of this ruler. And we're informed in verse 3 that Herod is troubled by these reports. He's troubled. He's agitated. 
Now, it's important for us to keep in mind that during this time, okay, there was actually widespread expectation of the coming of a great king who would deliver the Jewish people. This is confirmed by varying Roman historians, and the Jewish historian Josephus reports in his Jewish wars that at about the time of Christ's birth, the Jews believed that one from their country would soon become ruler over the habitable earth. Okay, so messianic expectancy is quite high amongst the Jewish people. And no doubt Herod's aware of this. And understand, Herod was not a Jew. He knew that the Jews hated him and that it wouldn't take much to cause a real uprising. And hence these wise men searching for the, the king of the Jews, this was a real threat to him. Okay, this set off the alarm bells and hence he had to act. And notice also in verse 3, we're told that the whole of Jerusalem was troubled. And this is likely speaking about the reality that they were fearful how Herod might react. What's he going to do? He's killed so many people before. Is he going to kill more people? Will we be in trouble? This guy's got a short fuse. He has no qualms about shedding blood. This could be potential disaster. How would the madman respond well surprisingly in verse 4 the madman is reasonably switched on he doesn't respond rashly he doesn't just explode like a volcano like we may expect but he goes and seeks information he wants answers and he calls in the big guns he calls in the religious experts we're told that he calls both the chief priests and the scribes Surely they would be able to answer his question. His question being, where should the Christ be born? Now the scribes who we read of here, they were the authorities on Jewish law, both the scriptures and also the man-made traditions. And they're often referred to as lawyers. And their task was to meticulously copy the Holy Scriptures word by word, line by line, and they were the professional Bible scholars and teachers of the time. So these guys, they were the experts. They knew their stuff. But I do wonder what was going through their minds as they were summoned by the king. Okay, remember this guy's crazy. And then you hear, you need to go before Herod. Herod's got a question for you. Naturally, I think you'd start to think, well, what does he want? Will I be able to answer his question? Were they confident? Were they anxious? We can't be sure. But they certainly must have felt a sense of deep relief when they heard the question from Herod. Because for them, this was an easy question. Okay, this was not something that they had to go and research. This was not something they needed to deliberate about. But rather, if you picture a game show, all of their hands fly to the buzzer. They all want to answer. This is so simple for them. Because the scriptures were very clear where the Christ would be born okay verse 5 they say sorry and they said unto him in bethlehem of judea for thus it's written by the prophet so they were assured of the answer and the prophecy loosely quoted in verse 6 is found in malachi 5 2 and what matthew the writer of this gospel is doing here and in many other places throughout his gospel is connecting the birth of Jesus to the Old Testament predictions about Messiah. Okay, he's trying to connect those two things. 
Because Matthew was written to the Jews primarily. And hence, this is a vital connection. So Jesus equals Messiah. That's the equation that Matthew is seeking to prove throughout his gospel. Now, Herod, having this information from the religious leaders about where this king of the Jews would be born, goes about launching a scheming plan. But before we get into this plan, it's important to identify that Herod believed this. If Herod didn't think Jesus was actually born, if he didn't think that this Jesus might actually be a king, if he thought, well, it's just a child, he's no threat to me, he can't dethrone me, he can't rule over me, he can't take allegiance from me, then he would have done nothing about it, and yet he acts. So, so this is a real threat to this man. Okay, this is a real threat to, to Herod. I'm missing a whole page in my notes, that's wonderful. Let's see how I remember. My memory's not wonderful. Okay, so this is, this is a real uh, threat uh, to this particular man. Now, when we come to scenes like this, what's really important for us to remember is the big picture of Scripture. So right throughout Scripture, the Bible tells one story. It's called the meta-narrative of Scripture. Okay? And it's about God saving mankind. If you want one word, it's redemption. Right from the beginning, okay, Satan has gone about trying to halt that plan. Okay? Right at the Garden of Eden, that's what he's trying to to do okay he attacks man and then when god announces in genesis chapter 3 okay someone is going to come the seed of the woman and he is going to crush the serpents okay that's the prophecy throughout the whole bible satan is trying to stop that from coming to pass and here this is just another attempt herod is an arrow fired from the quiver of the wicked one okay he's satan's servant and he's trying to stop the coming christ okay that's what's going on here. So what Herod does, okay, he launches this scheming plan. Okay, he's just like his master Satan. And he calls the wise men in and he says, guys, I want you to go to Bethlehem for me. I want you to find this Jesus. And as soon as you find him, come back and tell me. Because do you know what? You know, I'm a lovely guy and I want to worship him too. I want to worship the king of the Jews. So please, find him, come back, and tell me. Now, this was one big fat lie. Okay? Herod didn't care about his soul. All Herod cared about was the throne. He wanted to know where this child was so he could exterminate the threat. Now, we're not told whether the wise men were suspicious straight away or whether they were trusting of this plan. But what we are told, as soon as they'd finished with Herod, they departed for Bethlehem. They did this instantly, that there is this enthusiasm. And then we're told, as they departed, they saw the star again. And this, this enthralled them, that they were so excited. With a spring in their step, smile on their dial, they went to Bethlehem. They were excited to find the king of the Jews. So this is the scene. And with the background puzzle assembled, I want us to notice the two different responses to Jesus from this scene. Okay, both of these groups, they had the same information. They had the same opportunity. And yet one group responded apathetically 
And the other group responded appropriately. So let's consider these responses and determine what group we find ourselves in. So the apathetic response comes from the religious leaders. And we could define their response as all head but no heart. Okay, full of head knowledge, but there's nothing in their heart. Have you ever stopped to think about this? How outrageous it is that the religious leaders didn't go to Bethlehem. Okay, think about it. They are the religious experts. They lived in the Old Testament. They knew them back to front and inside out. They knew of the coming Messiah. They taught the coming Messiah. Okay, they understood that the scriptures spoke of a coming deliverer that was never denied. This is what all the Jews were longing for. And at this time, these expectancy levels were high. And yet these random wise men appear out of nowhere, speaking of some special star, talking about the birth of the king of the Jews. And this could well be alluded to in Isaiah chapter 60. And this pagan, paranoid king, he seems to believe that this one was born. Hence, he inquires about this birthplace. And the religious leaders, they answer the question, well, it's in Bethlehem. Okay, they know all about it. And yet not one of the religious leaders went to check it out. The religious leaders didn't go with the wise men. Okay, all the evidence was saying that Messiah had arrived. He's here. And yet the religious folk didn't respond. Wouldn't you think even just out of curiosity they would have gone? But no, nothing. They simply remained in Jerusalem like nothing had happened. And this attitude of apathy was reflective of the entire holy city. Jerusalem was full of people. And the people there, okay, from their birth, they had had messianic expectation infused into their life they were taught this from a baby messiah will come a deliverer is coming it will deliver the jewish people and yet no one went to bethlehem and understand it's only a two-hour walk now for us we think well that's a long time but for them two-hour walk it's not far we would expect the scribes these religious people to be the first people to run to Bethlehem at the slightest rumor that the Savior was born. But that was not so. They didn't go. And surely their lack of response must have been shocking to the wise men. So here we have an apathetic response. A response of indifference. They knew the facts. They knew all about it. But they did nothing about it. Okay, they were aware of the good news, and yet they remained completely unmoved. It had no impact on them whatsoever. They were the students of the scriptures. They knew their stuff, heads full of knowledge, and yet their hearts were ice cold. So that's the first response. Let's now consider the comparison. The second group were the wise men, and they had the appropriate response, which I've called authentic worship. Now, we need to keep in mind with these wise men, they were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They didn't live in Israel. They were not members of the covenant community. As the hymn says, they had 
traversed over field and fountain, moor and mountain. They saw the star and they came. That they left everything behind to find Jesus. They didn't care what it would cost. They didn't care about the potential threats and dangers. No sacrifice was too much. And they must have been shocked to find the indifference and the apathy in Jerusalem. What's going on? And yet this did not discourage them. They made their way to Bethlehem. They found Jesus. And look at their response in verse 11. They fell down and worshipped him. My friend, what a reaction. They fell down and worshipped him. J.C. Ryle refers to this reaction as the greatest act of faith in the entire volume of the Bible. And this is his description of the scene. He says, these wise men believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him as a little infant on Mary's knees and worship him as king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet when they saw the infant, they believed that they saw the divine savior of the world. They fell down and worshiped him. We have no greater faith than this in the whole volume of the Bible. And this is the appropriate response. This is the right response, authentic worship. They bowed down, they worshiped Jesus, that they gave gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, that is an act of worship. And what a sharp contrast we have here. What a stunning comparison. And what makes it so stunning is who does what. I don't know about you, but I expect these wise men, the Gentiles, to be somewhat apathetic and these religious leaders to adore. But that was not the case at all. And this comparison presented between these religious leaders and these wise men, they make us ask of ourselves, how are we responding to Jesus? How are we reacting this Christmas season? What group are we in? You know, it's possible to be apathetic, to be indifferent, to be unmoved, just like these religious leaders. We can know all about the Christmas story. You could write down the Christmas story in detail for me. You may even be able to defend the doctrinal aspects of the Christmas story. Okay, we can have all of this head knowledge, and yet our hearts remain ice cold. We know all about it, but it doesn't thrill us. It doesn't warm our hearts. It doesn't change or govern how we live. My friend, it's possible to, to get swept away with everything Christmas, to, to be consumed with everything that this time of year entails, and yet remain completely unmoved toward Jesus. You love the lights, you love the trees, you love the presents, the food, the time with family, the Christmas carols. You, you can love it all, and yet it still be possible for your heart to be cold toward Jesus. 
for your affections, for your awe, for your wonder to be completely unmoved, it's possible to be blasé about the greatest moment of history. Okay, it's possible for indifference to invade us like an army overtaking a city, for us to hear all this wonderful and glorious realities, to sing about it in the carols, to hear it preached, and yet it has no impact on our affections, on our desires, or the way that we live our life. Okay, this is true for those uh, who are not Christians. Perhaps there's some here this morning who are not a Christian. Thank you for coming. We're glad you're here. You know, you've heard about Jesus for most of your life. You've heard about him coming into the world. You've heard, at least from me this morning, that he came to save sinners. You've probably heard that before. You know all about it. And yet you've never personalized it. You've never embraced it. You remain indifferent and hardened to it. Okay, if this is you this morning, right now, okay, you're faced with a decision. Okay, this baby in the manger, he came on a rescue mission, and that mission was to rescue you and me from sin. How did he do that? Well, Jesus lived the perfect life that you never could, that I never could. And he went to the cross, and there at the cross, he took our sin, our guilt, and our shame upon himself. And the wrath of God was unleashed on him in our place. So he was a substitute. And he died, was buried, and he rose again on the third day. He defeated sin. He defeated death on your behalf. That is what this baby in the manger came to accomplish. Only he could do it. But understand, this must be personalized. This must be embraced. You must accept this in repentance and faith. My friend, don't remain indifferent toward it. Because eternity is a very long time to regret your indifference. And that's what's going to happen if you don't accept Christ. But we as Christians are also not immune and I'd like to suggest that indifference is a problem for us in the church. Throughout the whole year, we can be indifferent, but especially at Christmas. Because we have heard the Christmas story so many times. Okay, we know it well. And hence, there's a real danger of being completely unmoved by it. Our heads are full, but our hearts are cold. We have the knowledge, but our affections are unaffected. We know what happened, but it's not affecting how we live our life. We can know all about it, but it doesn't change us. It doesn't grow our love and our awe for Jesus. It doesn't drive us to worship. If that describes us, then we're indifferent, just like these religious leaders. Sure, our heads are full, but our hearts are cold. And here's the thing. I want everyone to understand that indifference is very dangerous because as we see with these religious leaders their initial indifference toward jesus would later turn to rejection of jesus okay, those who ignored him would soon come to hate him and play a leading role in his arrest and death that's the progression of indifference and hence indifference is a serious matter and we allow it to remain unchallenged within us at our own peril it's like allowing an aggressive cancer to remain in us and doing nothing about it. And again, this is especially true if you don't know Christ the Savior. Okay, you start 
just indifference, blasé, okay, it's not for me, but you will end up in hardened unbelief. You don't want to end up there. Okay, this is the danger with indifference. You know, who would have thought that these religious folk of all people, those who knew it all so well, would respond in such a way? And yet I would suggest that we too are susceptible. Come to church every week, we've been at every Christmas service, we've heard it and heard it, and truth be told, we are apathetic. We're unmoved, we're indifferent. Hasn't got to our heart. Friend, understand apathy is not the appropriate response. The appropriate response is exemplified by these wise men. How should we respond to the Christmas story? Well, we should be overcome by awe and adoration. That's the appropriate response. How can we not, when we think about it, how can we not be swept away that Jesus Christ became a man? He came to this world. He dwelt among us. And he went to the cross to die for us. How can that not move us? How can we not fall down and worship him? It ought to warm our hearts. It ought to grow our love for Jesus. It ought to produce worship. It also ought to produce surrender and submission in our lives. We ought to fall down and offer Jesus everything. Sure, we may not have gold, frankincense and myrrh. But the one who gets Christmas... The one to whom it's not merely head knowledge, do you know how they respond? Okay, they will fall down their knees and say, Jesus, my life is yours. Take it. Use it however you see fit. They'll surrender to the kingship of Jesus and stop living for the kingdom of self. Have you surrendered to the kingship of Jesus? Is he the king of your life or are you living for the kingdom of self? Living for material stuff, that the things of this world, okay, none of that matters. It won't satisfy we need to be living for Jesus. And if we truly understand who he is and all that he's done for us, we will not be able to respond any other way. We will be so filled with awe and adoration that we think, you know, whatever, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. I will live my life for you because you are the greatest treasure of my life. And brethren, I trust that describes you, that Jesus is your greatest treasure. So this is the comparison for this morning. And we all fit into one of these two groups. What, what group is it for you? Are you with the religious leaders or are you with uh, the wise men? It's possible to know the facts, to know the story, and yet be completely unmoved and unaffected by it. And this possibility is certainly damning evidence of our depravity and sinfulness. Great indifference to Jesus. How else could we explain it except we are depraved, fallen, sinful beings? But the irony of that is it highlights the absolute necessity of needing Jesus. And by God's grace, may all indifference be blasted away from our hearts. And I encourage you this morning, if you sense some indifference, whether small or great, deal with it this morning. Okay, repent of it. Indifference is sin. Okay, repent. And may we be moved to worship. May our awe and our affection for Jesus Christ increase. May we not be unaffected and unmoved this Christmas season. May we not miss the significance of the most important events of history. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, 
we're honest with ourselves, we need to confess that often we can struggle with indifference. Please forgive us for that. Lord, please blast away any indifference or apathy that is in our hearts. Lord, please help us to, to be pondering upon that which this Christmas season is all about. May it thrill us. May it grow our love and our awe for the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it result uh, in us surrendering uh, our lives uh, to his kingship. That's our reasonable service. That is the appropriate response. Please help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.